This is episode number 174, Mitigating Risks at Red Bull Rampage and How to Be a Confident Mountain Biker with Remy Metallier. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. I do not try if I can picture myself perfectly making it. So I really try to only launch myself off a cliff if I know I'm going to land where I want to land. If I'm not sure, I usually don't try. Whatever pressure I have, even if it's for a video or something like that, sometimes it's okay to make a mistake and not land exactly like you want. But usually analyze that and I know that even if I don't land perfectly on the landing, I'll be fine and I won't crash. If I think I'm going to miss the landing, I usually do not even try. Big thanks for hanging out with us today, and we're super stoked that you're here. I'm really excited about today's guest, and if you love gravity and extreme mountain biking, you've probably heard of the Frenchman Remy Metallier. He's been a top rider at Red Bull Rampage for many years, has solid performances at urban downhill racing around the world, and he's the incredible mountain biker you imagine as a Whistler bike park legend. He is also passionate about teaching others about anything related to mountain biking through his YouTube channel, which you should definitely subscribe to and check out. He talks about all the nuances of bike, tire, and suspension setup so you're dialed for your ride, trail previews of popular trails, especially the lines you'd never consider riding, and more pro tips. Plus, he can pretty much ride the impossible. Just like me, Remy loves the business of being a pro mountain biker and has built his career with his own team of partners, is a well-known product tester for many brands he works with, and he does push his bike to the limit with the type of riding that he does. He also loves trail riding. I love talking to Remy because he reminds us how important it is to focus on the development of skills, truly understanding how all of your equipment works, how to analyze what happened if something goes wrong on the trail, and how important progression and safety are when it comes to riding technical terrain. A lot of us just pick up a mountain bike and we just start riding it and we never really learn, quote, how to ride or how to set up our suspension or how to even change those things based on different conditions and terrain. So Remy is a really good resource in that regard. He is also passionate about the environment and we got into what he does to make a positive impact near the end of the show. And of course, you guys submitted questions for this back in December when I recorded this episode. So he answers all the questions that you guys sent in. I think you'll enjoy this episode because not only is Remy extremely knowledgeable, but he is articulate, honest, and humble. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. And thank you to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. And it's patreon.com slash The Sonia Looney Show. Or you can make a one-time donation on PayPal just to help us keep this show going. For the last year, we've been putting out two episodes per week. And I can't thank my team enough for the help to Roma and to Tina for making sure that this podcast flows smoothly and to you guys for providing some of the financial support to keep the team going and to make sure this podcast stays super high quality. If you want notifications about this podcast and other happenings in my life, including giveaways and new blog posts and things like that, I have a free weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday and it's sonyalooney.com slash newsletter if you would like to join And I always appreciate when you guys hit reply and send me personal messages. It means the world to me. 
I also love the reviews you guys have been leaving for the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It's pretty cool to get to read what kind of impact some of these episodes are having in your life. And it helps me stay motivated and really excited about the show. So thank you so much, you guys. You really do make a huge difference. So one last thing before we get into it with Remy, if you haven't noticed, I am pregnant and I am about 34 weeks pregnant. And I've actually been blogging about my experience, what it's been like, what my training has been like. So if you're interested or you know somebody who's interested, maybe another pregnant athlete and they're looking for someone to relate with, they can go to sonyalooney.com slash blog. And there is a parenthood and pregnancy category that they can choose from the drop down if you want to read about all of that stuff. All right, so let's get into this great episode with Remy Metellier. Welcome, Remy. It's exciting to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was so funny. I knew I've been following you for a long time, and you're this like crazy legend guy that I would see on videos. And then we ended up on this panel in Whistler together. And then I was like, oh, that's Remy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Not, many, not many people know how I look like, because on most of my videos and stuff, you don't really see my face. Like You just see me riding with my full face helmet. So many people don't, uh, don't necessarily recognize me when I'm, when I'm wearing uh, regular clothes. Yeah. And you were just, or you are just like such a chill person. Like you're really calm. And a lot of people would probably expect you to be kind of like a crazier, like louder personality. But yeah, I just, I really enjoyed like you're really calm and really well-spoken. And it was, it was cool to hear you talk on that panel and get to know you a bit better. Yeah, thank you. So I want to start chatting about Red Bull Rampage because Whenever most of us mountain bikers are out in the public and people don't really know what mountain biking is, people like say, oh, you're a pro mountain biker. So you're, you do that Red Bull thing and you go off cliffs and I have to explain to them and they look very disappointed that no, <laughs> that's not what I do, but that is what you do. So for the people listening, if they're not familiar with Red Bull Rampage, like, can you talk about what it is and how it's scored and how it all works? Yeah. So basically Red Bull Rampage is an event that happens pretty much every year in Utah, just at the door of the Zion Park, uh, Zion National Park. And it's uh, a zone that usually sticks around for two years. And so each athlete has basically eight days with a team of two other people. So each rider has basically two builders and themselves to create and build a unique line. And so those eight days just before the finals. So you have four days that are just building you cannot use any power tool. You basically can only use pickaxe, shovel, rake, and sandbags. So those are for the first four days. And the next four days, you still obviously build because it's, it's a huge, like, like the amount of work is unbelievable. Like it's, I think the stuff that impresses me the most about Rampage every year is the amount of work that goes behind building a line. Because the terrain is so gnarly that it will be absolutely unrideable without without digging. And so digging is obviously a huge part of it. And so for the four following days, you can keep building, but also you can train. Uh, most of the time, people are so busy building that the amount of training is actually quite limited, like quite small. And then comes finals. And so on finals, you have two runs, best run counts. And basically, judges uh, look at style and um, style and tricks speed amplitude and uh, you know basically how technical and exposed is your line so 
whoever is going to win is usually the guys that can have, you know, super gnarly and technical line with huge jumps that can put some tricks as well. And it's going to have, you know, a lot of creativity, best style and, uh, and also some speed. Wow. So you have to know a lot about just how you're going to work the trail over with your bike. Like when you're building the trail, like where you're going to pump in, where you're going to go off, like where you're going to land. Does weather conditions change your line over a few days? Definitely. Well, usually it doesn't rain much. If it does rain, it can be like, you know, quite heavy rain, but usually doesn't last. So if it rains during digging, it's actually better because that helps uh, packing the dirt and shaping everything better. But the main issue in Utah is the wind. The wind can be, um, you know, it's the same for everybody, obviously, but the wind is extremely dangerous because once you're in the air, regardless how skilled and how prepared you are, if the wind is blowing you, there's nothing really you can do to, uh, to fight it. And that's, a, I guess, the biggest challenge. So what do you do if it's, it's time for you to do your, your two runs and it is really windy? Like, how do you compensate? So usually there is a, you have a wind delay. Each rider on top has basically 10 minutes to drop in. And also they try to find like a, a window for everyone to get a run down where the wind is going to be decent. So last year, for example, they had to move the start by, you know, an hour or maybe two hours just because it was, you know, the original time that was 11 a.m. was too windy. So they had to like move it to like, you know, 12 or, or 1 p.m. just to get a better window with, uh, with the winds. Wow. And have you ever like gone off one of those lines and then come up short or not had it, have it go the way you wanted? And if so, how did you correct for that? Well, the, to be honest, the jumps are so big that if you if you really mess up the speed and you overshoot or or case, you usually um, usually you crash. There is not many years where someone you know, like if you make a mistake, usually you cannot recover, and that's you know because the jumps are so big, the impacts are so big. If if you ride a small jump in the Whistler bike park and you come slightly short on the tabletop, most of the time you know with skill and and bike settings you you are fine. But on jumps that big, it's really important to be super dialed on, on your speed. And last year, actually, during finals, during my first run, I hadn't practiced one jump. I'd only done it a couple of times and never from the top. So the way I landed, my speed, like, uh, you know, I was not too sure. And I basically cased the jump pretty good and I almost went over the bar. The only reason why I stayed on my bike is because that was probably the smallest jump on my line. <laughs> If it had been any bigger, I would most likely uh, have crashed. And it was, it's funny because it was like kind of a small jump, nothing, you know, so I didn't like think about it that much. It was not something that scared me, but it's where I almost crashed. So how do you know, like how to build a line? Because you're going to be building a line that's going to be kind of around your limit, right? Like, like what percentage of your limit are you trying to build that line so that you can do better and get scored better? Because I imagine it'd be hard to know exactly where that limit's going to be. Well, to be honest, and that's like, I think that's, that's been my entire career. I've always been like very conservative with what I do at Champage. I've never like, you know, every year you show up at that, you know, venue and people, you know, go for like a huge cliff. And, and I'm looking at it being like, there is no way I'm going to ride on that. But then people are so good at, you know, building 
and seeing stuff that seems unrideable and making it rideable that you know they can turn anything into something rideable whereas me i was not nearly as good with you know my vision was not nearly as good so i'll always be super conservative and then once it built i would be like well i wish i had taken like the bigger cliff because this is now this is not challenging enough but that's also what kept me safe you know it's because i've been more conservative i you know didn't get any any crashes or anything like that at trumpet yeah, and it would just be hard to plan that, like to know exactly, you know, how big to make it and then what everybody else is doing too, because you're being scored against them, but you also need to be able to be at a place where you're comfortable and confident doing your own line. Yeah, exactly. And and that's definitely was my, my weakness the last few years is that, you know, I was being very conservative and I was not good enough at transforming an ID into an actual line. Was some people have, you know, like, you know, obviously Brandon Semenok and, and Brett Reader and those guys are obviously an amazing mountain biker and like the most talented guy on the planet. But they're also really good at seeing something and being like, okay, I'm going to turn this cliff into a landing or I'm going to turn this into a drop. Whereas me, I was, you know, I struggled to imagine that that would be possible with the amount of time we had and resources. So how does somebody learn how to do that? Because most people aren't allowed to just go to their local trail system and start building different lines. Well, it's it's pretty tough. Like uh, a lot of those guys, you know, have done that for longer. You know, they've built trails and jumps and features for to film videos. So that's how, you know, it's like anything. It's like mountain biking. Like one of the biggest thing is, is, you know, getting more experience. And once you've done it, once you've done a jump, like, 200 times like you you know you get that extra experience and skills that's gonna allow you to know how your bike and your body is gonna react to you know basically jumps all over the world from different sizes and different shapes and this is basically the same the more you dig and the more you create stuff at home the more comfortable you are as the day of the event to you know come up with a line that's that's rideable and why do they only do it in utah are they thinking about doing rampage somewhere else the, the main reason is that it's such a unique terrain that's pretty much the only place they found on the planet where it is actually possible, you know, to make that kind of events. Somewhere where you can ride insane lines and as well build in such a small amount of days. There's not many places like that on Earth where you could do that. You know, the dirt really packs really well with water and which is super important to do those jumps that are like 10 or 12 meter high, you need a landing that's steep, wide, big, and also perfectly packed. It has to be just as hard as cement. And there's not many places like that in the world where you can transform the dirt like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you also do urban downhill racing. Can you talk about what that is? Yeah. So basically urban downhill is just like downhill mountain biking. So it's a one by one race. So it's a timed a timed event where only the downhill is timed. We usually shuttle in, you know, trucks or buses. Sometimes we, we push the bike up. And um, and so it's a race course that they are only for basically a weekend. We get some practice on one day and one practice lap and final on the next day. And uh, it features some natural obstacle. Well, natural, like, I mean, some street obstacles such as like stairs. And there is some man-made jump as well, mostly for the show. And usually the course is between, 
you know, one minute 45 and, and four minutes. It usually happens in uh, South America. And yeah, it's a super cool event because it's basically done in mountain biking in the streets. And so instead of having trees around you, you just get thousands of people uh, cheering on you. So it's, uh, it's, it's really cool. And a lot of cities use those events as a way to generate tourism, basically. Yeah, and man, I haven't done any urban downhill races, but I've raced a lot in South America. And just the energy of the people there is so incredibly special. And it's so much fun to be around that kind of crowd. Yeah, it, it's really cool. It's definitely an eye-opener. You can tell like people are happy to see you know strangers coming to their country and, and racing their bike down the streets. It's so, it's a, it's such a unique vibe. Is is there any dirt or is it all like on pavement or like grass or whatever? So it's it, it's mostly pavements, but some section you know might feature dirt. Some of those places are really like really poor areas. Uh, for example, we went to Bogota in Colombia, and the top of the course is on the dirt because it was the plan for the city was to promote kind of a remote area from the city of Bogota. Uh, that's, you know, the country is basically investing a lot of money to make that place that used to be, uh, you know, super rural, like a bit more attractive for tourism and for tourists. And so basically we started up on the pretty up high and it's places where there's not necessarily any uh, pavement. Sometimes it's just dirt. So the start was dirt and then the finish, which was like a kind of a, a richer part of the city was pavement. How do you decide what tires to use if there's not a lot of dirt? Most of the time we use uh, regular uh, Dunhill tires just because you need the reliability of a Dunhill casing tire and you also need uh, the knobs to you know, grab really good on the stairs and, and as well on the pavement. As the pavement is not always very clean. It can be a bit gravelly. So a semi-slick tire doesn't necessarily work best some things that, you know, a dry tire usually works better. And how do you deal with the pressure of these events? I mean, I Rebel Rampage, you're on TV and, and like the consequences are quite high if something goes wrong. And then at these urban downhill events, four minutes is a really long time for a run. And you're one by one against with all these other people watching and all these things can happen. So like, how do you deal with the pressure? To be honest, it's to me, it's it's always been hard. At Trompage, I've never really been under pressure because, you know, you you just do your run, and I usually have done everything before, so I'm just trying to ride my best and ride smooth and, and have fun. So the only pressure I, I really had at Trompage was from the winds, because once I've done the the line, I've, I've always been very comfortable, and I, I feel I could do it like, you know, 20 times in a day, and I will not be a, a problem. But the wind has definitely been. Uh, challenge and for the urban Danny, it's more the like I don't deal well with expectations, like the expectations that I set myself. You know, if I ride really good during the um, training, if I feel fast and confident, and I know I have a shot at doing something really good for finals, I put myself under I guess too much pressure, and it's not always easy to to deal with. So I guess it's just like trying to be chill and relaxed and just focus on what you know how to do and. But yeah, it's it's pretty challenging. I guess it's like basically only racing where it's like, you know, being really good at training is one thing, but performing during finals is just another another thing. Do you have anything specific that you do, like mantras or routines or breathing to help you kind of get into a flow state? 
No, not at all. Usually, if I don't think about anything and the, the less I care, the better I do. If I start stressing out and, you know, being too focused, I, I usually don't do well. So I just try to be super relaxed and, and, you know, not think about the race at all. I usually have jump everything and, you know, like I'm comfortable with everything. So I just try to, you know, ride extremely smooth and, and smart. I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, not use any any energy for, for stuff that is not like meaningful during the run. So, you know, like a little gap that's not making you any time. I try to avoid that. I try to, you know, be like really good with my sprint and how I manage energy. And this is like one of the main thing. If I can manage my, my physical aptitude well, then the riding, I usually try to not think about it because it's, it's the most natural for me. So it's more like trying to manage the physical effort, I guess. Yeah. And uh, I've only done a little bit of enduro racing and downhill racing is on a whole other level, but just learning how to be smooth and not spastic and not like just freaking out while you're going down these things is, is actually a really hard skill to learn. And it's something that after I did that, I had a, a ton of respect for people who are excelling in these situations like you are. Yeah, it's really tough. Like uh, even today, I went on a little ride and it was a triadian. No, it was quite wet and slippery. And it's like, as soon as you lose a bit of confidence because you slide once, it's really important to learn how to regroup and put it behind you and just like keep on focusing and relaxing. And if you ride tight on a race, like you just get too tired too fast. So it's really important to, you know, allow yourself to make a mistake and not let it affect you. And I guess that's like, you know, something, and that's why, you know, some guys can win World Cups is because no one ever make a perfect run. And those guys, you know, can put like nearly a perfect run, still make a mistake on the top and not, you know, let it affect them. And they just keep on riding relaxed. And that's, I think, something really hard for people to do is to stay relaxed at all, at all time, basically. How do you learn how to do that? Is, just, is it just through experience? I guess through experience, like it, it's funny because I know that, you know, I know that I'm never going to make a perfect run just because it does not exist. It's impossible on four minutes long to do an absolute perfect run. So it's always, even if I don't make any mistake, if I don't make any mistakes, that means that I've been riding a bit too conservative. So it's just like to know that, you know, it's impossible at some point I'm going to make a mistake on a run. I can be just like, you know, sliding or unclipping my foot by accident or you know something like that and you have to be okay with it like you know it's gonna happen during your run at some point and you just have to to be okay with it and just keep being relaxed because most of those mistakes actually cost you like not even a quarter of seconds and if you think about it and you start to tense then instead of losing only a quarter of second you're gonna lose like a second or two seconds because you didn't ride smooth for for the rest of the track I wanted to ask you, this is, doesn't even have to be in racing. Um, I did this photo shoot with Brett Tippy one time, and I definitely wasn't riding the stuff that he was riding. <laughs> I'll put that out there. But I saw him like ride this crazy line in the North Shore, and he messed up and he crashed down it, and it looked really bad. And instead of just saying, I'm not doing that anymore, he got back up, he went back up to the top of the feature, and he rode it again. And I was so amazed that he did that, and I know that you do that too. So... Like, how do you shake that off and go back up there and not think about crashing and, and be willing to try again? Well, you know what? It's like, once again, I think we come back to like experiences. Like, if you make a mistake, 
you know, let's say I do a jump and I completely case it, the strength you can have is just to analyze what happened and be like, well, you know, instead of, you know, going as fast as I could on the jump, I thought I had enough speed, so I cruised on it, and then I came up like a meter short. If you know what happened and if you understand why you crashed, it's really easy to correct it and to correct it for the next time. So, you know, like, let's say I do a jump and I come up short. If I understand why I came up short, I can correct it and try again and I'll just go faster, basically. What's really hard is that when you crash out of nowhere and you don't understand what happened, <laughs> you know, everything is going well and suddenly you're on the ground and, you know, you don't really know why, like you don't, you know, well, you know, obviously that, you know, you lost your front end or, or whatever, but you don't really understand why it happened at that exact moment when you've been riding for five minutes and everything was going well. And then that's where it's a bit hard because then your confidence takes you it. If you understand what happened, it's it's easier to overcome fear and, and just make it successfully a second time. Have you ever had a crash where you got hurt really bad and then you lost your confidence like after you healed from the crash and it took a while to start feeling good again on your bike? Not really. I had one crash where I fractured my uh, T6 on my back and that was, that was a nasty crash, but I made a mistake and... You know, it's not something I was doing every day. I did like a backflip and I slightly overshot and, and over-rotated it. And, you know, it was like, I guess my confidence took a little bit, but because because I've done like a really good uh, rehab and, you know, I went to the gym a lot and, and I didn't feel any any issue with my bike anymore after that, it's, it, it hasn't affected me. Do you have any advice for somebody that would have an issue? Because that, that's a question that I get a lot is, I crashed and now I've lost all my confidence and I'm afraid to ride anything technical. Do you have any advice for that? Yeah, it's uh, you have to understand why you crashed in the first place. You know, it's okay to make mistakes and crash, but the best thing you can do is try to analyze what happens. Because if you understand what happens, then you can, you can correct it. So every time you ride and you make a mistake, it doesn't have to be a crash can just be like you know to slide a little bit and and you get a bit sideways and and unclip your feet from your pedal or, or something like that that's okay but it's really good to understand what happens because then you can adapt and you know sometimes it's also it has to do with your bike you know you can suddenly lose your front end which is you know you're not used to make you know that kind of mistake and you can be like well actually my tire pressure might be a little bit high and then you you know you you can understand your bike better and your riding and you you can adapt it. I think that's my main tip to people is trying to under, when something goes sideways, it's to understand, try to understand what happens. So you analyze like everything, and that way you can progress instead of you know staying stuck on something. You can actually progress and and get better for the next time and hopefully uh, hopefully progress and not crash anymore. Yeah, I, I want to get into your YouTube channel a bit more um, later in this podcast, but learning how to analyze what you did wrong is actually really hard to do. Like understanding, well, did I use too much front brake or rear brake or was my tire pressure off or was my suspension not set up properly for the temperature it is outside? Like there's all these different variables and learning how to analyze what went wrong is a skill in and of itself. And I, I know that in your YouTube channel, like you're, you're passionate about like teaching people about proper setup and what all these different things do on your bike. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's, I mean, something that obviously, you know, takes time and, and experience and for mountain biking, for me, it's easy because that's, that's my job, but I do a lot of activities where, you know, a beginner or intermediate rider 
and where sometimes, you know, I make a mistake and I, I don't really understand why, even though that will seem obvious to someone that's, you know, a more accomplished writer than me. So I think it's just like take patience and, and basically try to understand. It's more like um, it's kind of work to uh, analyze and, and try to understand, but that's the best way to progress, I think. Yeah, and it changes kind of depending where you're riding. Like, I know for me, I'm still working on getting more confident in really wet situations because I don't know what my tires are going to do once I'm on something really steep and there's no option other than just to get down it. So how can people learn how to do that? Because depending on where you are, even like rocks can be slippery or rocks can be grippy and they could both be have the same amount of wetness on them. Yeah, no, for sure. Like to, today, for example, is I didn't ride on a wet weather like that in a, in a while. And today was really wet. And I was just, you know, not as comfortable at riding on this condition because there was like a lot of off-camera routes and, and slippery rocks. And I'm just not used to do that anymore because I basically didn't ride in the wet since last winter. And so, you know, it's kind of my first time like going back onto gnarly condition like that. It just takes time. You just have to be patience and basically you have to take you know every failure as like an opportunity to progress and sometimes it's really good to work on your basics and and you know but once again if you understand what's what you did wrong it's easier to be like okay well i've done that wrong because my body position wasn't wasn't the greatest so i'm gonna work on those off camber corners so i can progress and then i can you know be more confident and faster on the trails and it, it's stuff that I it's stuff that I do. Like I believe whatever level you do, like it's really important to sometimes go back to the fundamentals of mountain biking and, and work on like stuff that seems basic, but just so you can you can, you know, keep being better. A lot of people just picked up a mountain bike and started riding it and they didn't actually learn true fundamentals. They just kinda learned as they went. Is there a resource that you really like where people could learn like what the fundamentals of mountain biking are and how to progress in that way? To be honest, I'll encourage people, well, you know, there's different kind of learners, but I'll encourage people to observe how more advanced riders ride. You know, I, I believe the best way to, you know, it's not for everybody, but at least that's what worked with me is that I will analyze how, you know, my idols, uh, like Nicolas Bouillos and, you know, Fabien Barrel and all those guys, I'll, you know, look at their riding and how their bike seems to react, how their body position is on the corner. And I'll just like look up to that. And then I'll be like, well, if those guys are able to win World Cups while using that technique, it's most likely because it's efficient. And so I'll usually, any sport I'll do really, I'll usually look up to like the top riders and, you know, basically analyze how they do things. And then usually that will tell me why they do uh, stuff a certain way but i think i think it's really good to actually get classes with a mountain bike coach you know obviously that has a price and and if you can afford it i think it's something that's that's really important it's just really good to have someone that spend time with you and you know is able to correct you and you know sometimes it's just your friends it's it's i think a huge asset to be able to ride with people that have like a critical point of view and can, you know, point out stuff that you could improve. Yeah. And I also think, and you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but taking videos of yourself can be really helpful too, because you might think you're doing something and then you see it in the video and you're like, oh, I actually wasn't doing that. Oh, completely. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Taking videos is the best way because 
you know, you have an idea of how you ride, but then when you see yourself on video, you're like, oh, actually, like, my body position is a bit too low from the ground, or, you know, my pedals were not parallel to the floor, or, you know, my, I need to spread out my elbow a little bit more. Like, this is, like, video is the best way to see how you perform. And, like, I do the same myself. A lot of time, you know, when I'm filming, I think I've been doing something good. And then I look at the footage and I was like, whoa, actually, you know, I did this mistake or this mistake that I didn't necessarily notice while I was riding. And and to give you an example at the gym, like, how do you know if your form is good when you do a squat or a deadlift? You know, you can kind of see yourself on the mirror, but taking a video is a great way to see if, you know, if your posture is correct and, you know, if you push the weight like the, the correct way or if you do something that's you know potentially could uh, injure yourself yeah it sounds like weight training is something that's something that's really important for you especially so that you don't get as injured when you crash is, is that right uh yeah yeah that's that's been the most like that's been the biggest uh, thing for me is to uh, yeah basically prevent injuries what are your five favorite gym exercises that you do if people want to add them into their workouts i believe Deadlift is probably the most important exercise for mountain biking because it's, you know, it's, it's basically your entire body and a lot like your, your posture and, and your lower back and uh, as, as well as, as your legs, back squat and front, and front squats for, you know, kind of pedal efficiency. I prefer front squats than back squats because I find them more complete. And also you put less weight usually. So you are less likely to, you know, to injure yourself and, a front squat is harder to do than a back squat, uh, which means that that helps you work on your mobility, which is very important. And it's definitely not uh, where I'm really good at, pretty stiff. So I really like the front squat, deadlift, and then I guess bent over row are, are really important, and I like the balance stuff. Okay. And so. like a theme that I've heard kind of going through the podcast is that you shouldn't be afraid to crash and that crashing is part of mountain biking and that's how you learn what you did wrong. I think a lot of people are afraid of crashing because they think that it's going to be catastrophic every time or that it's just scary to crash. How have you accepted crashing or like, can you help people who are really afraid of crashing to get more comfortable with that idea? Well, to be honest, I'm really scared to crash. But when I ride or when I do something that I consider being a risk, I usually only do it if I'm 100% confident I'm going to be fine. So I always try to remove crashes from the equation. I know they can happen anytime because something can be on the trail that I didn't plan or, you know, a bike mechanic. I mean, that, that could happen to get a flat tire at the wrong time and, and crash. That can happen to snap your chain while you're doing like a technical uphill and go over the bar. So I know that crashes are like, you know, part of mountain biking, but I do everything I can to limit them like you can't remove them but to limit them and yeah i guess you know if you are fit and if you go to the gym and if you do all that kind of homework all you're doing is basically limiting the risk of injuries so that's what i try to do and if i'm confident with that i'm less likely to get injured i like that you said that unless you're not really really confident that you're going to make it down a feature or a part of the trail that you won't do it because i think that people think sometimes well i should just ride off of that and there's a progression involved and like you should be riding down something if you're only 50% sure yeah it's it's funny actually you mentioned that because i just filmed a video 
on Friday about uh, safety and uh, risk management and risk awareness. That will be uh, on YouTube in a probably next week. So where we actually talk about that. On my side, I, I only do stuff if I know I'm going to make it. I do not try if I can picture myself perfectly making it. <laughs> so I, I really try to, you know, only launch myself off a cliff if I know I'm going to land where I want to land. If I'm not sure, I usually don't try. Whatever pressure I have, you know, even if it's for a video or something like that, you know, sometimes it's okay to make a mistake and, and you know, not land exactly like you want. But I've usually analyzed that and I know that even if I don't land perfectly on the landing, I'll be fine and I won't crash. If I think that I'm going to miss the landing, I usually do not even try. Yeah, something I heard you say in another podcast was that form is so incredibly important, especially whenever you're doing jumps and things like that, because if your form is right and you know what speed to go, you're going to be fine. But if you don't have the right form or you get the speed wrong, then that's whenever mistakes happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can never have too much skill. And so working on those basics and those fundamentals, it's like, you know, a huge way to limit injuries when doing like jumps or steep rock roll or whatever is to make sure that you start with the right form. If you don't have the right form and you just try to progress to high consequence features, it's not the right way to do it. And, you know, it's fine until you have a big crash, basically. And how do you train? Because I noticed that you spend a lot of time on a trail bike, which is different from a downhill bike. And then there's the skill part of it. There's the time in the gym. And then there's also like the power you need to sprint and have the endurance to do all the different things you want to do. So what does your training kind of look like? To be honest, I, because I'm not like, I don't get paid for racing. Now I, I just do whatever makes me happy. And so it's riding my trail bike and riding jumps on my downhill bike. And I do the gym, like, because obviously it's very important, but also it's like a good, you know, I go with my friends and it's like a good social, like I have a good social group that goes to the gym. I don't really set any proper objective in terms of training, but I've noticed that the happier I am on my bike, the more fun I have, the better I ride. So regardless of my fitness, you know, if I feel really, if I stick to a very strict program at the gym and, you know, I might be better physically but if every time I go and ride my bike I'm tired because I've spent so much time at the gym I don't have as much fun and if I don't have as much fun I don't progress I felt like the more you know relaxed and the more fun I have on my bike the better rider I become so that's what I've been doing especially the last the last two years and I felt like it's, it's been like by far my best year of riding cool do you want to move on to the business side of things so you you just said that you don't get paid to race and that you have been managing yourself as an athlete and, you know, writing your own proposals, getting your own sponsors, maintaining those relationships. So what is your value proposition to your sponsors whenever you go to one? So most of the time, and, and it does depend on the companies, but typically it's uh, like visibility I can offer, credibility as well. So visibility is basically the number of people that are going to see my content and, you know, and how easily it is to, you know, spread that content around because it's, you know, let's say it's like uh, impressive or like viral. And the credibility is mostly like the knowledge I have of the product and the writing style I have. I believe credibility to uh, the brands that I work with. And another part that's really important for me is uh, product testing. So there's 
you know, not everyone likes doing product testing and I really enjoy it. So I love like, you know, working with brands on products that are not yet available for customers. And, you know, sometimes they don't even exist yet. And it's just like having a conversation with engineers and, you know, designing a product that does not even exist, not even on a computer. And, you know, having the first prototype and testing it to the limits and giving feedbacks and, uh, you know, hopefully having it, uh, you know, then sold to people. Awesome. And like the content planning side of things, you mentioned, you know, creating either videos or photos that are going to go viral or that are going to get a lot of views. How do you go about planning those things? Because I know that a lot of times people think, well, I'm going to make this video or if they don't have the credibility and reputation that you have already, they're thinking like, I want to get into this area and I want to start making my own videos. How do you know what's going to be a good video? I guess it comes down to my experience with what I've worked on the past. I usually try to find stuff that no one has done before. And whatever I do, I always want to promote like, you know, perfect body position and perfect control. I don't want to promote mountain biking that's like unsafe. So, you know, I don't want to promote like a jump or a new line that I do if I do it out of control. I only want to promote stuff that I super control and, and comfortable, but I don't really plan stuff that much, honestly. Um, I feel like if you plan stuff, you just set yourself with expectation and then you kind of feel like you have to do things. I really try to have fun and, you know, ride around. And when I see something cool and I feel it, I do it. I don't really plan stuff that much, even though sometimes, you know, I have an idea in mind and, you know, let's say the trail needs some work. So I'm just going to go back, uh, put some work on the trail, make sure that I have the bike with the right settings and the right equipment to do it so it's, you know, safe and it makes sense with the feature I'm doing. Yeah, and there's an authenticity piece to that. Like, I've tried to, you know, do a content calendar and it just doesn't feel good because that day I might not feel like talking about that. But it's always encouraged, like in marketing, to have like your content planning and your calendar and all those things. But there's also a balance of doing what feels like the right thing for that day, too. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, it's like a sport where it's like super weather depending. <laughs> you know, sometimes I've planned, like I have a, a couple of features that I'd like to do. I didn't get to do them when it was dry. And now, basically, I have no chance to make it happen until until April or May when it's going to be dry. <laughs> so, you know, I know what events usually I'm going to do, like quite far ahead. And I know what big trips I have planned. But other than that, and like kind of the everyday stuff that happens around them, I don't really have that much of a planning. And sponsors are fine with that. What motivates you the most to work hard and to, to keep pushing and doing new things? Well, to be 100% transparent, and I think very few people actually talk about it, but mountain biking is my full-time job. Like 100% of my incomes coming from mountain biking. So it would be like kind of hypocritical for me to not say the financial aspect. Like the financial aspect is definitely important because that's my full-time job. So if I don't go out and I don't do stuff, I don't get paid. But the main reason why I do that and like the reason why I chose that sport and that job has never been for the money. It's been because it's been my hobby and I enjoy doing it and I have fun doing it. And that's the reason why I keep doing it. But, you know, sometimes there is some stuff on the, on the job that I enjoy more than others. 
And sometimes, you know, taking a risk or doing a video can be like really time consuming and effort consuming. And the motivation behind can be a financial motivation. And I think like I'll totally be lying if I was not mentioning it. Yeah, it's really hard. Like it's amazing, but it also it can be challenging whenever your passion and the thing that you love the most is how you get paid. Because sometimes it's easy to get burnt out or if you're getting paid based on like a certain number of views on YouTube, like there's only so much control you have or on Instagram, there's almost, almost, you know, you don't have that much control. So you just do your best to put the best content you can out there, but you can't control a lot of things past it. So like, how do you deal with that part? Yeah. Like I I don't set myself um, expectation uh, around that. Like, and I really do stuff that I want to be doing. Like one of my next projects for next year, which is like, it's going to be the most important stuff for me personally is not the stuff that has the most value for my sponsors. It's not the most marketable project I'm going to have all year long. But for me, personally, it's probably the most important one. And so this one, for example, doesn't have any, you know, financially, there's not really any impact. Or same for my career. It's not, it's not huge, but it's for me personally. So I'm going to really put a lot of time, work and effort on, onto it. But with, with YouTube, for example, or Instagram, I, I really share the stuff that I like. Whatever it is, like I want to promote some things that I like. So all my videos on YouTube is stuff that I, you know, have fun doing. Some obviously are more fun than others. But that was the main reason with um, with the trail previews I've been doing is I wanted to find something where I can produce content that people like where people can, you know, learn stuff, but at the same time, and, and to be 1% selfish, I wanted something that I enjoy doing. And I didn't want to start doing some videos where it's like, you know, that are going to get views and that are going to get traction if I don't have any fun doing it. And so that's one of the reasons why I went to that uh, route of the, of the trail previews is because I have a ton of fun doing it. I wanted to move on to some of the listener questions. And one of the questions kind of falls in line with um, YouTube and making videos. You know, there's a lot of awesome people out there who are making mountain bike style YouTube videos. And, you know, you're a pro rider and you do all these really incredible events and you have all these skills. And I'm not trying to put anybody down in any way, but like there's people who are have less skills and, you know, aren't professional riders, but they're professional on YouTube. Like they're really doing awesome, making entertaining videos that are getting people excited to ride on YouTube. Do you have any like feelings ever whenever you see like you put a video out that has all this value, but then you see somebody else's video that's doing so much better than yours? Do you have any like thoughts around that? Well, you know, of course, like it's, you know, sometimes I'm like, I don't really understand it. But, you know, in order to be, you know, happy and content with everything, it's, it's just not about what other people do. It's like, I just want to do the stuff that I enjoy. And if someone else is doing something that, you know, I don't necessarily value, but that's doing well, it's because people like it. And at the end of the day, if people like it, that means it's probably a good video. And, you know, good on them, like doing videos on YouTube, whatever, regardless the skills that you can have on the bike is not easy. And if you're able to catch people's attention and have a cool story and have people wanted to watch your video, it's just as hard as, as you know, being good at riding a bike. And it's not for everybody. Like, I don't feel I have the skills to, you know, tell stories where people get hooked. Definitely the reason why people look at my stuff is because they get 
you know, professional information about how they can improve their writing, how they can improve their settings, and they can see, uh, you know, cool trails and good writing. But I don't have, you know, the skill to really entertain people. And I, it's not really my personality to be like funny on YouTube or, you know, but some people are doing well and, and it's it just as hard, like, you know, all the credit for them because if they can catch people's attention, they, it means that they're good at it. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter, you know, what skills they have on, on the bike or not. It's just as long as, you know, people enjoy watching their content, then every, you know, everybody is happy. It's just what's a bit frustrating is when the information they give is inaccurate because they don't necessarily have, you know, the professional experience of riding a bike. And this is just like my side of, because I'm a mountain bike coach as well. It's, you know, basically I want people to come on YouTube to learn something and I want to make sure that they get, you know, correct and accurate information. That's that's the only thing that I'm really worried about. And then that's why one of the reasons why I did that YouTube channel is because I believe I have the credibility of being a pro rider. So I have the experience and the knowledge that people can really learn stuff from my channel that they might not find in another channel with, uh, you know, like an intermediate or beginner rider. Yeah, the crazy thing about YouTube is like, not only do you have to be a really good writer, you have to be able to, you know, depending on what kind of channel you have, be entertaining, like what you said. And then you also have to be able to know how to edit the video and want to spend that time or, or hire somebody to spend that time. But editing videos is really detail oriented work and it's really time consuming. And then on top of that, like understanding how to upload properly to YouTube with the descriptions and the tags. And it's just, it, you have to be an expert in lots of different things to have a successful YouTube channel. Yeah, totally. And I believe that's the reason why the most successful YouTube channel are like more intermediate writer is because it takes so much time that it's nearly impossible to be a full on provider and focus on YouTube. You will not have, if I was doing the YouTube game full on, I will not have enough time to run my bike and to get better at riding and to go to the gym. It's kind of one thing or the other. And if I was doing all the videos that I would like to do, I just would not have enough time to actually being a provider. Yeah. And, and there is a couple of providers that do it and do it well, but it's either because they started with YouTube and they became provider because they have insane mountain bike skills, or it's because they were, you know, competitive provider that kind of gave up competition and now purely focus on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So they already have the skills and, and then they don't, they don't necessarily progress with their biking, but they just keep their, they just basically keep their skills. Yeah. Like you have to be multifaceted in your skill set to have a successful YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah, totally. So here's another question. Um, someone asked, where's your favorite place to ride? Uh, Puri Squamish. Which, do you have a, a specific trail or, or like five trails? That's a good question. Well, I love Guranga because it's, um, <laughs> you know, there's obviously legal and illegal trails. So I won't speak about the uh, illegal trail network, but uh, on the legal trails, I guess Guranga because it features, you know, some, some gnarly rock rolls. I like Weso. I like... Ditch pig. Honestly, I like I like pretty much every trail that's going down. <laughs> as long as it's not, uh, I don't really like easy trails. I don't really like easy corner. A lot of people love cornering. I do not like cornering. <laughs> I'm pretty good at it, 
but I do not enjoy it. So I like steep and gnarly stuff or jumps usually. Yeah, Cliff's Corner is worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it's where you make up time. It's where you fast. But yeah, I find corners uh, dangerous. <laughs> what do you think about, um, and this is something I've just kind of noticed in Squamish and just kind of around, like BC is known for having really technical riding that's steep and gnarly. And it seems like some of the trails now are becoming more sanitized, like they're taking out some of the features or they're building more flow trails. I personally don't really like that, but there's a reason that they're doing it. Like, do you know much about that? Well, there's, I guess it's different things. Like there's so much traffic now on the trails. That's, you know, the liability uh, part of things. That's one of the reasons why, you know, people remove like gap jumps on, you know, on like the high traffic trails and try to build stuff a bit safer. I guess like there's a lot of people that are, you know, like no one really makes money from advanced riders. Like the bike industry makes money from more beginner slash intermediate riders that you will find on green and blue trails. The most advanced riders are not the people that make, you know, an industry leave. So I guess that's, you know, from a business point of view, that kind of makes sense to focus on more easy trails, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like the Whistler Bike Park, for example, doesn't make money from people riding crop it and, and dirt merchants. They make money from people you know, coming and trying mountain biking and, and going on easy does it and crank it up and, and the, the more easy trail. What are your thoughts on man-made trails? Like bike park is very machined and man-made um, versus like natural trails. Oh, it's it's a different style. Like uh, I think man-made trails are, you know, especially like blue and green trails, like or even trails like Alf Nelson. I think that's a sing- might be a blue or a single black trail. This is what gets people into mountain biking because it's fun. You can actually ride down the mountain without taking too much risk. It's easy for a beginner to, you know, try mountain biking and get hooked. Whereas, you know, the more natural trails are usually more technical and, and gnarlier, they more they are more targeted towards more advanced riders. And if you take a beginner on, you know, something a bit too hard, most likely they won't they won't try again. So I think there's, you know, the man-made, like the, sorry, the machine, machine built trails are really good for kind of like green and blue trails because they allow people to ride on a hill safely and, and to have fun. And, and I guess if you try mountain biking or if you're kind of new to the sport and you have a great time, you'll come back. If you do something that's too challenging and that is dangerous and outside of your comfort zone, you most likely will not try again. So I think it's really good. That's not what I enjoy myself, but I think that's really important. And that's, you know, the reason behind the success of the Whistler Bike Park is that anyone that can ride, you know, a bike on the bike lane can go and ride a mountain bike on easy does it and have a great time. And I think that's why the Whistler Bike Park has been so successful. That's really good perspective. Next question. What is your favorite lunch? (laughs) Favorite lunch. Wow. <laughs> so so I like biking. I think biking is pretty fun, but nothing beats eating. <laughs> eating is by far my favorite hobby. Favorite lunch? Hmm. Good question. There's too much. <laughs> I really like uh, lately, I've, I've, well, I've always liked that, but uh, I really like Buddha Ball. So I kind of like, um, like more vegan, like I mostly eat vegan. I still does eat meat, but very very little and and then 
completely for Earth reason. But yeah, I really like a, a good Buddha ball. That actually leads into another question. Yeah, people asked, like, what lifestyle changes have you made as a climate activist and about your diet in particular? So I barely don't eat any meat. And so I mostly eat vegan. I don't really buy any dairy product. I mean, I do have sometimes a little bit of cheese, but very little. You know, I sometimes eat eggs, but so my, my diet is mostly vegan. I'm not vegan because I still eat, you know, a bit of eggs and, and meat, but it's mostly vegan. So I'll say that, you know, my everyday is vegan. And, you know, sometimes I will have like local meat and, you know, some eggs for breakfast, but it's mostly vegan. And what I do, which, you know, I think is, is my thing is actually, I'm really beginning to uh, ride sharing, actually. I usually carpool everywhere. I don't ever drive by myself anywhere unless I have to. I usually pedal to the trailhead. You know, sometimes when it's pouring rain and I have to film, obviously I drive to the trailhead. But as much as I can, I start from home and I really try to reduce my driving. You know, if I have to go to the gym and the supermarkets and to a shop, I do one trip to make everything instead of going to the gym, coming back home, staying at home for an hour and going for going uh, going to a supermarket and coming back and going back to a shop, I really try to plan my day so I'm the least amount of driving. And um, yeah, obviously I'm really beginning to stop using any disposable product. I don't ever like take away food. I don't ever, you know, have my coffee and a takeaway cup. And I'm really careful with, you know, what product I buy. I try to buy as locally as I can. And I try to buy the product with the least amount of packaging. And I also try to work with my sponsor to have them ship products without any plastic or any paper. But I figured out that sometimes it's impossible. And the reason behind is because when you ship products like across the continents, when it crosses border, it has to respect a certain quantity of packaging to be allowed in the country. So for example, Camelback that ships product from the United States to Canada to me most of the time, they use a distributor, which is in Vancouver. So the products are coming from Vancouver to Squamish. So it's, you know, but sometimes, you know, for because the products are pre-production or prototype or whatever, they have to ship it directly from the United States. And, you know, I ask them to not put any packaging. But the reason why they can't is because Canada will not accept the product if it's not wrapped into plastic. So it's really complicated, but I'm trying my best to you know, have companies ship with a minimum of packaging and also do the minimum number of shipments a year. So instead of getting like, you know, five shipments a year, I try to get shipped everything once, which is not always possible, but I try my best for it. Yeah, I think that's great advice just in general for everybody. Like people get hung up on labels really easily and they think, well, you can't possibly be a climate activist unless you're 100% vegan, or you can't be a climate activist if you own a car. And really, it's not about perfection. It's not about a label. It's just about doing the best that you can and just making an effort and being aware of of what you're doing every single day. And if everybody could just do that, instead of worrying about the label or worrying about being perfect, it would make a huge, huge difference. Oh, completely. Like, you know, it's like, no one can be perfect just by being alive. Basically, we, we have an impact on the planet. And it's more like, what can you do on your everyday that, that's going to be you know, beneficial for the planet? Like there is no way you can have strictly no impact. 
especially you know in 2019 like you know we all dependent of like we can't live without producing any any trash and stuff like that and and you know at the end of the day like what you can't forget is that everyone has to make money you can have someone that works in an oil field in alberta like you know the guy has you know family and he has to pay a mortgage and you know he has to work and he doesn't do a job that's very healthy for the planet and you know that's okay because what is he gonna do like is he gonna get unemployed just to you know limit his impact on the planet it's not feasible but what's doable is to you know that person can on the side of its job like limit driving and try to car share try to ride share with one of his co-workers so they don't you know try to get a car that's maybe more fuel efficient and try to limit driving you know no longer use takeaway food no longer take coffee to go and just bring a reusable cup try to limit you know the quantity of um you know, imports you do from, from product. Like, why would you buy tomatoes from Mexico if you can get tomatoes from, you know, from Canada? You know, all that kind of stuff, basically. And, uh, and yeah, if everyone was doing that, and if everyone was taking that in consideration, that would be already a huge step. And also, what one of the main things, it's most of the time, it's costless and effortless. Uh, someone asked, what kind of supplements you take? So I use so a company from Vancouver called Ergogenics which is actually vegan supplements. And so obviously they have different products, but uh, the product I use the most is a protein powder. So it's a vegan protein powder. And I usually take it, so it's best in a smoothie. Usually on a, on a smoothie, I'll put, um, you know, banana, peanut butter, almond milk, chia seed, hemp seed, and, uh, and frozen fruits. But I also take it just with water after, after a big workout. Okay. Um, this one we've kind of talked about a little bit, but I'm, I'm going to just ask it. This person wants suggestions to help riders get out of their head, such as those who are afraid of crashing, afraid of falling off of obstacles, missing a jump, etc. I think the main thing is like there is no shame to not do a jump. Like it's it's better to really focus on, you know, knowing what you're capable of doing and focusing on what you can do, and the stuff you can't do that can be done is more to understand. How can I work my way to get there without injuring myself? And if it's like, well, this is like, you know, kind of a technical drop. Well, then the best thing you can do instead of just sending it is to work on your basic skills of doing drops. So you can, you know, build confidence and experience and you can work your way to, you know, a specific feature that you have in mind. I think it's really okay to, you know, walk away from stuff. Like I walk away from stuff all the time. Like, even if I've already done it. Like today, for example, I went on a ride and there's that new drop in Squamish where I did a suicide no-ender on my trail bike and, and it was you know, not something outside of my comfort zone. But today we did kind of a big ride and you know, it was wet and cold. And you know, I was like, well, I've done it enough time. I don't need to go and, and jump it again and you know, take a potential risk. Okay. I think that's awesome advice. And I think people hearing that from you, especially because people will probably assume that you ride everything all the time and you never walk away or you never walk your bike down something or around something. Then knowing that you're human is helpful. <laughs> no, I always do. And like I've done the trail today that has a, a drop at the start and it's pretty intimidating. It's really steep at the landing. And, you know, I've done it enough time to know what's up, but I just still stop and look at the landing just to make sure there is no tree on the way that, you know, nothing has changed because it's a blind drop and if there was a tree at the bottom it's something that could cause you know a terrible injury potentially 
And so it's okay to take your time, stop, look at it. I think you, you become a better rider by being a smarter rider. This person asks what your views are on racing and why you don't do more races because you're incredibly fast and skilled. So they just want to know why. I don't enjoy much dealing with the pressure of racing. Like I ride a mountain bike because I have fun and I discover that, you know, racing, even though it, you know, it can be fun when you're on the gate and it's your turn to, to drop in, it can be extremely stressful and I don't deal well with that. I don't, I don't really enjoy that feeling. So that's the main reason. And the second reason is that from my perspective, unless I was winning international races, I will not bring anything to my sponsors and the sponsor are the people who pay me. So financially, that would not be interesting for me unless I was going to, you know, be a top guy at a World Cup level. And if I can be competitive, and when I say a top guy, it's, I don't mean top 50, I mean top five. And I don't have the speed or the, you know, the strength and the endurance to compete at the top five level. Okay. And then this guy says, people often say Rampage riders are crazy or insane. How do you respond to those kinds of comments? Most of those guys are crazy and insane. <laughs> <laughs> but I think if you walk your way up there by, you know, nailing like every single step before, it's not as crazy as it sounds like to me. You know, sometimes I see people riding a single black or double black trail in Squamish way above their skill level and pushing themselves to the absolute limit with a bike that's not necessarily well set up. To me, that's crazier than seeing Brandon Semenog doing a backflip off a drop. I'm more confident watching Brandon Semenog or, or whoever doing something at Trompage than I am watching an intermediate rider pushing totally outside of their comfort zone on a local trail. And once again, it's you know a matter of experience. And you know when you see the top rider in you know any sport really doing something at their level, I find that less scary than watching someone going totally outside of their comfort zone to, you know, prove themselves something or impress their body. How old were you when you started riding and when did you start to seriously shred? Well, I've, I've always wanted to ride, but I got my first like proper mountain bike when I was 16 years old. And, you know, ever since I've been, you know, I've been riding, but I've only started to ride a lot, I guess, when I came to Whistler, maybe the previous year. Like the previous year is when I started to, uh, you know, I had like a student job and I'd been able to save up some money. So I had like a downhill bike and an enduro bike. And I also bought a four-course bike. So that's, I guess, when I progressed the most because I was able to have like all the skills. So kind of dirt jumping and, and BMX racing, as well as, you know, the speed with downhill and kind of fitness and technical aspect of uh, enduro riding, like trail riding. And so that was when I was 22 years old. So did you move from Canada? So one of the questions is, why did you move from Canada to France? Was it for the mountain biking? Mostly for mountain biking and for skiing. I had done a business school back home in France, and um, I didn't have any experience outside of France, any professional experience. And so I looked up, because I've done a special program where, you know, part of my studies was, were paid by a company I was working for. And so basically by moving to Canada, I could get a one-year work visa and, you know, obviously ride mountain bikes and ski, but at the same time get, you know, experience in a company in line with my studies and obviously improve my English. That was um, like the main motivation. Okay. I've heard and I didn't, I didn't end up working much. <laughs> I've just been biking a lot. 
I've heard in some of your other interviews, just like jokes about your French accent. And I thought that was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't, I can't really lie uh, about where I'm coming from. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that actually is, I think, enough questions. And thanks so much for all of the amazing information that you've given people today, because I think that all of it is really applicable and useful and also really relatable. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for your time. Yeah, hopefully that, uh, you know, helps people and motivates people to go out and have fun on their bike and, uh, you know, stay safe. And where's the best place for people to follow all of your adventures and find the great content that you're putting out there? I guess there's a two platform uh, like right now for me, uh, you know, Instagram, it's where I keep the most updates and YouTube. I try to come up with uh, one video a week and uh, especially that video coming up, I guess that will be uh, mid-December about safety and risk awareness is something that uh, I hope many people are going to see mostly because I think it's really important for the bike community for people to understand how to build up that, you know, experience and that, you know, knowledge of, uh, you know, what you can do, what you can do, and when it's worth it and when it's not worth it to, to do something. So I hope a lot of people will watch that and because hopefully that can, you know, keep people safe and, uh, and happy on their bike. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Remy. It was awesome to have a chat. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to you for having me. And uh, yeah, I hope to see you soon in uh, Squamish. Wow, there's so much in this episode and I still can't believe how many things that we talked about and how many things that we covered. Make sure you check out the risk and safety video that Remy posted and also just check out his YouTube channel. All of that stuff is linked in the show notes and also follow Remy on Instagram. He's really fun and I'm always amazed by the stuff that he is riding. Thanks so much for listening. If the plant-based stuff and the environmental stuff resonated well with you, make sure you're subscribed to the show because next week I have a Cornell PhD in oceanography to talk about climate change and a bunch of the environmental things that contribute to it and what you can do. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that. I also have a free Facebook group called Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney that you can just enter into the search bar on Facebook. And you can join over 2,000 people where we just talk about things that you can eat that are better for the environment, that are better for your health. And you don't even have to be plant-based or even want to be fully plant-based. It's just about being healthier and being around people who want the same thing. So that's called Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney. And there's also an Instagram, Plant Power Tribe, that has more day-to-day tips as well. Thanks so much, you guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sonia Looney Show. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you right back here in just a few days.